What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 45 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise.co.uk and sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and as ever, I'm joined by my very good friend, I'm Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? Apart from sitting in like a pit of condensation because of the weather, I'm um, I'm pretty good. How about yourself? Mate, I was going to say, it is roasty as fuck, isn't it, in the UK at the minute? Holy shit. <laughs> it's, the, it's the proverbial roast potato, mate. It's just, I, went, I went on a walk today for only like 15 minutes and I was literally like covered in sweat by the time I come back. It's just unbelievable, this weather, mate. Well, whenever we've been meeting at the pub, I've been walking to town, haven't I, from where you I have. live. Which is about which is about three miles, isn't it? I think we came to yeah, give or take. We did it, yeah. yeah, it's about three miles. And honestly, every time I've done it, I've thought, man, I'm, I'm going to need to cool off before I fucking meet these. Like, because I, I like, I am hot as fuck, and like, literally, you can feel like the sweat on you. Like, I try and walk quite slowly yeah. as well, but in this kind of weather. The, there is just no escape. That's why on Saturday I thought, "Fuck this! I'm just going to get a taxi, man." Because if I if I walk three miles in this heat on Saturday, I would have come up looking like I'd just done fucking two laps of Michael Phelps in in jeans as well. You yeah. mad, you mad man! Like your legs would have melted away from underneath your waist. It would have been extraordinary. Yeah, Matt. Honestly, the the thought of walking three miles. How long did you walk? Like about a shot. mile than a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was just like a couple of errands. I had to run on it to like sort of twenty minutes. But mate, by the time I was back, I was like, I need a drink. I need to sit down. I need to recool. I need to like realign my life. Check that my wheels in order just in case I melt. Like it is yeah. just horrible, horrible. Like you've done a full athletics relay in the space of fucking fifteen minutes. Yeah, honestly, honestly, I felt like one of those sort of high intensity workouts or something. Well, I've been doing those every other morning. And it, and they have been problematic as well in this weather. I'll, I'll get I'll get up early to do them so that I don't get caught in this fucking absolute shit storm of heat. Mate, if it help early mornings and workouts, if you just had vegetables, that's like my holy trinity of things to dislike. <laughs> so I'm, I really respect your loads for that. At least someone does. <laughs> we're, weekly, we're, we're a weekly rock and metal podcast brought to you by Nozick Cardio Cars. I mentioned and sponsored by the beautiful folks at Stereo Brain Records. We're available on YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify. So wherever you're listening, uh, please give us a subscription or tell a friend. That would be awesome. We are growing at a really steady pace at the moment. But every listen really counts and every subscription counts even more. So wherever you're listening, drop us a like and subscription. That would be absolutely amazing. Thank you very much. On our last episode, you would have noticed that we chatted about uh, download Metallica's Ride the Lightning entered our greatest metal of all time list at number nine. And we had a review on a new In Hard to Wait record, Kali Yuga. Uh, this week, we've got the news coming back again. We've got another breaking band slash breaking artist segment. And album reviews come on Kill the Lights, The Sinner, and Creeper's new record, Sex, Death, and The Infinite Void. Sam, we're going to jump straight into the news. Okay. I sent you a couple of pieces that I just wanted to briefly speak about. Uh, tonight, and there's nothing major that's going on as usual at the moment. Everything is pretty quiet yeah. d- due to the current situation. Uh, one of them, Sam, was an Ozzy Osbourne documentary trailer, which yes, somehow I, I don't know how this must have missed me. I actually wasn't aware of this tr- uh, documentary's existence for you until I showed you the trailer. No, this was this was this was news to me as well. Really, really was. He, he's not seemed to have made this particularly public, has he? Well, I mean, possibly he hasn't. It's just completely gone over my head. But I was not aware of this at all. So when I caught on, I thought, right, okay, um, I'll send this Sam's way. The main reason why I 
wanted to bring this up to you. Um, did you watch much of the Osbournes? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Right. I used to watch it a fair bit. Right, so I, I watched very little of it. I, I think the only episode I can truly remember watching is they did some kind of Christmas special. And I think that we must have had it on in the living room in the background. And it was one where Ozzy Osbourne teamed up with another another artist and did um, like an Ozzy Osbourne rendition of a Christmas song. I can't even remember the Christmas song because that long ago. So I watched very, very little. From the snippets that you've seen, how how close to the Osbournes does this look like it will be? Because I barely watched any of the Osbournes. It has the same sort of vibe to it where we have um, clips of Ozzy and then interspersed with the viewpoints of his family, like right. in an office US type um, docu- documentary sort of situation. But rather than the Meet the Osbournes that was really supposed to be like um, an honest portrayal of Oz- Ozzy Osbourne as a parent and, and how they argued with each other, really tried to capture the drama, this one appears to be one that's supposed to shake Ozzy Osbourne and his business decisions in a positive light. Yeah. So them talking about like Ozfest and things like that is definitely different in tone than the Meet the Osbournes, which really um, the film crew just wanted as much drama to happen on the on the camera as possible. Yeah. And then cut away to Ozzy Osbourne failing to justify his parental decisions or Sharon Osbourne shouting at him or whatever. That's what they were trying to capture. Whereas this definitely appears like a very structured very tailored experience that's expected to have a certain outcome um it's about like you know them being like oh fuck it we'll just make Ozfest and then it becoming this really successful festival um so yeah i, I imagine this is going to be a much more positive portrayal than meet the osbournes was i remember like i remember being kind of like because i knew who black sabbath were i remember finding it a little bit cringy and I, I remember, I remember people that like my parents' generation, my parents and, and other people that liked Black Sabbath, being really embarrassed by Meet the Osbournes um, because it was just sort of deconstructing this hero of music that had yes. just sort of let himself go. Whereas this appears to be very, very different, which I think is probably a good thing. He does mention in his book towards the end of it how he, he tended to get quite a fair bit of you know flack. For me, the Osbournes, for pretty much what you just said, the hardened Black Sabbath fan that were like, well, hang on, Ozzy Osbournes turned to like a fucking reality star. What, what the fuck is yeah. this? Um, now, like I say, I can't comment because I, I barely watched an episode. However, this trailer, it did seem incredibly strange to see him in a house setting for me. Now, you might yeah. be more familiar, to, you might be more familiar with that than me. It, it looked really weird, didn't you, just to see him chilling on the, on the settee like with his kids? It was really weird. It was weird then, um, like watching it on Meet the Osbournes, it never got, it never became normal because the vibe was generally pretty much what Jack Osborne was saying, where it never felt like Ozzy was comfortable at home. Yeah. You know, that, like when he was yeah. talking about it, saying he doesn't feel like a dad around the house. And Meet the Osbournes was identical to that. Like Sharon was just, you know, shouting at the kids and doing normal parental stuff, trying to ground them and stuff. And then it's like Ozzy Osbourne like bumping into the walls and. <laughs> <laughs> and like shout, shout, shouting at the dog, and then like giving the kids money. And then Sharon was like, "What the fuck have you done that? I've just grounded them." And he's like, oh, "I don't know. They wanted money for whatever." And it's like you can't go out. And then Ozzy Osbourne's dropping them off at a party because he has no idea that they're grounded. And it's like that sort of stuff. Right. Where he's like a, a sitcom dad, but that vibe was continuous. Um, I agree with you. Um, clearly, I mean, from Ozzy Osbourne's perspective, he's been on the, he's been on the road what pretty much his entire adult life. 
and there's a certain style of life, a certain lifestyle on the road that you just can't replicate in your own living room. No. And he's not suited to that, which I, which I imagine is probably one of the reasons why, despite his many health concerns, he still tries to book gigs, still tries to go out there. I think that's just what he feels where he's supposed to be. I, I'm really looking forward to this documentary, Sam. I, I think this I is, is going to be yeah. really, really brilliant. I, I, I'm currently watching the Defiant ones. I'm not sure how in-depth this documentary is going to be, or it's going to go in, as in-depth as the Defiant ones, but if it's anything like if it's anything like the Defiant ones in the sense of it tells this overarching story and then comes back to the people that were involved while they give like anecdotes about what was going on at the time, I think this could be a really, really brilliant piece of work. I agree. I think it has um, a potential to be really, really interesting because no one's really done a serious look at the life of Ozzy Osbourne without trying to make him seem to be this caricature type figure. And he really has been involved in some massive things over the, over the last 20 or 30 years you know, in, in, our, in our scene of music. And I'm looking forward to that portrayal of that. And I'm hoping, actually, that it feels honest, that it doesn't feel like a yeah. bit of a PR move. And I'm hoping that we do get a little bit of, of insight into some of the decisions and some of the arguments and stuff, because it wasn't all just sunshine and roses. And I'd like to see how that's portrayed on screen. Be interesting if they bring up the rights from uh, his first album, wouldn't he? Yeah, I, could, I, I would love to see... <laughs> yeah, I would love to see Sharon Osbourne being asked about that. Yeah, I doubt that's going to come Yeah, me too. I imagine... I imagine if, if if it's paid for or done by an Osborne-related production company, then they're going to have veto power over some of the questions and topics. Yeah, aren't of course. They? Yeah. Uh, moving on, Sam. Uh, ACDC's final record has been delayed due to the pandemic. Now, again, reason why I wanted to bring this up. I mean, this isn't um, a massive surprise, of course. The, the recording of the album has been delayed. Uh, it's going to feature riffs from the late great Malcolm Young. But the main reason why I wanted to bring this up, Sam. Do you think the idea of bands that are very, very, very much at the end of their career, such as ACDC, who pretty much are at the end of their career here, do you think the idea of calling it a one more time record stops us from wondering if we need it? For example, uh, did we need Slayer to do Repentless? I, I, I don't think we did. However, had they have said prior to Repentless, hey, this is the last one, by the way, but this is the last record we ever do, we might have gone into the record with rose-tinted glasses on. Uh, the same could be said maybe uh, for Hardwired Self-Destruct by Metallica, which was a good Metallica record, but, you know, their, their, their set list aren't, wouldn't be faltering without it. If, you know, if they weren't opening on Hardwired and they were opening on Creeping Death, like, they, like we mentioned during the Ride the Lightning chat, no one's going to raise any eyebrows, are they? Uh, so, no. One final ACDC record. It's going to feature the feature is from uh, Malcolm Young, as well as the other surviving members as well. Um, a one more time record, Sam. Does it stop you wondering if we need it? Because you know um, it's the last one. It, do, it does. It does take away that that feeling towards it. Yeah, it, because the. Yeah, because essentially it's answered that question, hasn't it? It gives it an era of finality. You're not yeah. wondering if they can, should continue to do this. You know that this is the last one. Yeah. And I also think that if I said, oh, this is the last one and it's going to be a completely new album with new ideas, I'd be like, okay. But if it's the last one with the last remaining riffs that Malcolm Young has wrote, then that adds a different level of intrigue and interest to it and a, and a nice legacy thing. And it also ties a bow 
that when Malcolm Young stopped writing riffs, ACDC stopped working as a as a studio album band. And I yeah. like that idea that it that it sort of ends with him. And this is like a final cutoff to that. Um obviously we don't need a new ACDC album. We, nah. we I think we I think we stopped needing new ACDC in like nineteen eighty two. Um they could have they could have done their nineteen seventy three to nineteen eighty one set list forever. Apart from the apart from the absence of Thunderstruck, I'm pretty sure everything else is is, is almost identical. But um, yeah, I think I think it's a nice touch to have it this way. Um, it does make me think. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll I'll get into this a little bit more than it would if it was just another ACDC album with the prospect of several more in the pipeline. And as well, conceivably, even this album can ACDC do this. Like, no, that is yeah. a separate question. You know, like, Brian Johnson, as quick as the health issues and come back, Malcolm Young has obviously passed away. Um, I think the name's uh, Cliff Williams, their bassist, actually retired uh, from the live group on their last tour in 2016. Um, Angus Young's obviously perfectly all right at the moment, somehow. And <laughs> Axel Young, Axel Rose has been doing vocals for them in the interim periods of time. So that what we, what we think about ACDC what we've known ACDC to be is not what ACDC are at this stage, unfortunately. So I'm glad it is the last one because in three years, I don't think this would be possible to even remotely do this again. Anyway, this is the, this is the, the last available pieces of music, the last available riffs, the last available um, time to get everybody together for this last bit. Um, does it feel like a genuine project, Chris, to you? Or does it feel like the, the scrapings at the bottom of a very, very large barrel? Well, it's interesting you mention that because I, I feel like... I mean, you tell me, was Black Ice any good? It was all right. Six out of ten. Was that the last record they ever did? A rock or Bust. Rock or Bust? That could be 2014, did it? Yeah, that I ran one. then, yeah. Right, uh, was, that, was that any good? Six out of ten, mate. Right, okay. So, with 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 this, I feel like uh, just basically echo what you said. There's a there's a chance they've got I don't know twenty riffs that Malcolm recorded at some point. That because they're Malcolm's most bands, they'd be eight out of ten riffs that would be in every song. There are probably backup riffs that Malcolm wrote. That they're like, yeah, right, well, Malcolm, Malcolm wrote those, and they're still on the computer. It'd be nice if we dedicated the album to him. Um, Brian, uh, Brian Johnson, I believe, one of the reasons why he had to stop uh, doing vocals is because they told him he was going deaf. Yeah, um, yeah. And that if he carried on performing live, he would just go deaf. So, uh, you know, Brian, they can just bring back for the studio stuff because you wouldn't imagine that would be such a strain on his ears, although I would still imagine there would be some strain, so I'm not entirely sure how they're going to handle that. For me, this seems like we never actually got the chance to say this is our last record. We've got, we've got 20 spare Malcolm riffs that are still on the computer. We can call it our last ever album and have like an, an, an ode of finality to the whole thing. And I, yeah. think, that, I think that's all right. It? Um, Black Sabbath yeah. did the same with 13, didn't they? Black Sabbath said, mm -hmm. hey, this is our last one, by the way. Um, now, I've never heard that album. Was it six out of 10, that song? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Actually, actually, the 13 had some, had some, Seven out of ten moments. Right. It was it was decent. It was decent in parts, but 
it was all yeah it wasn't like none of these albums are like hall of fame top five for that band sort of records but from my understanding from the critical reception to 13 uh, and from the people that i spoke to about it uh since obviously i wasn't into black sabbath back uh, when that was released um and now i'll go back and listen to sabbath but really i only listen to the sabbath that you tell me is worth listening to for which you've never done for 13 <laughs> um, yeah yeah so my understanding for that was that like I mean, it wasn't great, but people kind of gave it a pass. It's like, well, it's the last Black Sabbath record, and it, it, it's got Ozzy on. You in the main? Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, once a band reaches like its fifth decade, the standards are like, we're just happy you're doing riffs still. Yeah. That that's where we're at. That's where it gets to. And a lot of ba- a lot of people will go and see the band because of the nostalgia anyway, and and anything that sort of reminds them of what this band used to sound like, what this band used to do, is good enough. But also. The album just gives the band an excuse to tour. Yeah. Excuse to make money. An excuse to, to go back around the world and play those hits again. The the fans buy in, they buy the album, they buy the t-shirt. But really, you go and watch Sabbath and ACDC and you want to hear the same final half a dozen songs that you pay. That's why, you know, that's why your ticket's 80 quid and, and that's what you want to go and that's what you go, go for. And if this gives ACDC the opportunity to be like, all right, um, we'll put industrial-sized earplugs in Michael jo- uh, Brian Johnson's ears, have Axl Rose on standby, and do four shows, uh, one in Wembley, one in some mad, mad, massive stadium in, like, Argentina or Brazil, one mad stadium in, like, America, and one mad stadium in Australia. It's like a homecoming final gig. Yeah. And then really blow the fucking doors off, have all the fireworks and all that sort of stuff, and say thank you for everything, and then the rest of us get to wave off the greatest rock and roll band in the world. I'm happy for this album allowing yeah. that to take place. Yeah, that's a good shout, man. You know what I mean? You know, they finish off with, like, Back in Black or Highway to Hell, and then there's, like, a big little montage of Malcolm, and then they all stand together and take a photo, and there's the fireworks, and, you know, everyone cries and goes home. And there's a documentary brought out about it in two years, and that's ACDC's retirement plan, alongside, obviously, Back in Black still being in the top 20 rock albums of Billboard, the 2025 Billboard charts somehow. Um, but yeah, I, that's fine with me because they deserve that, don't they? You know what I mean? Like, they give an opportunity to really say goodbye and uh, put it to bed. Man, I hope they listen. That's a great idea, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I, might try well find their P- I might try and find their PR agent and email them this podcast. Right, listen from this bit and see what you think. Because <laughs> I'd, I'd even, I'd even favour that over just like a festival appearance. Because then it's just like, really, it feels more exclusive to the fans. And you can have like a proper set, a long set. They can just start at like eight and play till 12 if they wanted to. You know, really do it properly. Um, rather than having like, you know, 80,000 people, but 50,000 are there because they're already going to be there. Like you yeah. want the actual fans. And, and I feel like that would be, I feel like that would be really, really good. Can you move on to two tracks New track, sorry, that I wanted to mention to you, Sam. Uh, Gajira's yep. Another World. Uh, no news of a new record yet from the French metal behemoths. Uh, but this is their first material since 2016's Magma. So you would assume that something is coming in the form of a new album announcement that may come out this year, although we are knocking on a bit now. So maybe it would be early 2021. Uh, Sam, I think one of the really positive things about Gajira, and I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, from my perspective, they're the the young, I say young, but 
you know, they're, they're one of the younger metal bands that everyone seems to be on board with. Yeah there's, universe, there's uni- yeah, there's a universality, isn't there, to, to Gajira? Yeah, like, for example, I'd love to say that about Parkway Drive, but, you know, you look at the feedback on Reverence, and it's either, this is great, this is a really good step that makes sense for them, um, it's all right, but it's not what I wanted, or it's the absolute hatred, oh, my God, they don't sound like Horizons anymore, fuck these, fuck these guys, whereas <laughs> Gajira haven't got yeah. that. There's this universal understanding and liking of Gajira, and you can see why can't the sound. I really like this. I really like this song. That fucking fat twisting riff that runs basically throughout the whole song. I'm all about it, man. You're into this? Yeah, it's a good song. I don't think it's great. I don't think it gets out of no? like third or fourth or fifth gear. Uh, and that's actually, uh, it's actually an interesting point about perhaps why the Gajira um, are so agreeable. Is that there's nothing really about them that's disagreeable. Yeah. Um. They they're not a band that are like. I don't mean this as an insult, but they they tick all the boxes relatively well, and they're sort of like in the middle piece of everything. You know, they're relatively heavy, they're relatively well uh, technical. The screams are relatively hard. The drums are relatively interesting. Do you know what I mean? There's no like what I don't think there's any one particular thing where they're like really fast or really really dark or re- they're just sort of like an all rounder, sort of like a seven out of ten. It's like they're everybody's. They're everybody's third or fourth favourite metal band. But I've never met a Gajira fan who fucking adores them. Like I've ne- I, I'm, sure, I'm, sure that, I'm sure they exist, obviously. I imagine there are a lot of them in France. Um, but I've never, met, I've never personally met one. And I think that might be why they're so universal. Because they are, like I said, like a sort of all-rounder. Um, I, think this is, I think this is good. I think this is good. I think it's a strange choice for an opening single because it doesn't seem to jump out the gates. Uh, as I expected a first single to really do. But overall, um, Gajira are going to bring out an 8 out of 10 album. Everyone's going to give it a solid rating. The Gajira fans are going to really, really like it. They'll subheadline it, download, and we'll be, we'll be, we'll be, you know, we'll be continual with the way that we see them in our, in our culture. I think what Gajira are really good at is making songs or more specifically certain riffs feel like the set piece, kind of like they do on Stranded. And they mm. do that. They do that really, really well with the main riff of this song. And I echo your sentiments. Uh, I I know uh, a lot of people that love Gajira. I think obviously you know them as well. But like you've never really asked them. Like our friend Will, man, Will fucking loves Gajira. Cool. Uh, Liz uh, Liz loves Gajira. Oh, yeah. uh, Matt Matt loves Gajira. Uh, but I, I do see what you mean because like that they're, they're also. I don't think they've ever be I've ever really spoken to them, and they've like championed Gajira to me. It happens that they've come up into conversation. They'd be like, "Oh my god, I love Gajira," as opposed to doing what I do, probably somewhat annoyingly, putting my arm around someone and being like, "Have you heard about this band?" People probably hate me for that. You have to live with it. That's me. I'm sorry. <laughs> so gonna... I love I love I love it personally. So, so we're going to keep our ears out for. Uh, a new Gajira record, which I would imagine will come yes. 2021, but you never know. I really like Gajira. I like this, uh, and I think that it's really nice and refreshing to have a band that everyone likes, and you haven't got to fucking think about the uh, vocal minority that will just be arseholes on the internet about it. Everyone seems to like Gajira, so they should. They're a wicked band. Agreed.
Something completely different, Sam. Uh, King Mothership, uh, their first ever single cosmic meltdown. King Mothership is Spencer Satello and Matt Halpern from Periphery, as well as Ty Wright, formerly of Slaves, on bass. Spencer, of course, vocalist. Matt, of course, drummer. Uh, and my understanding is that Spencer Satello has done both guitars and vocals here, which I, um, I mean, it's not surprising because you look at, you watch a Periphery documentary and how they build their records, and it's very apparent that Spencer is widely talented not just vocally you can tell he's got a good idea of riff arrangements and stuff so i guess it makes sense for him to do um guitars here as well if you ask me sam this is yet another example of his absolute brilliance i, f I fucking love this guy <laughs> he's so talented isn't he i, I love I him think this is um I think this is really good. I got a real Coed in Cambria vibe from this. Oh, Matt, I'm so glad you said that. You know, I've recently got into Coed in Cambria. Mate, I'm all about that. That is a shout. I love that you said that. It, it, yeah, it's, it's, in that it's in that wheelhouse, right? Because the riffs aren't overly complicated, complex, but they really suit his voice. And his voice is obviously sensational. Um, and this is um, a, really, a really enjoyable, up-tempo refreshing to hear Spencer Zatello singing over something that I don't have to really figure out. Yeah. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed hearing his voice and being able to just sit back and not try and deconstruct the song or really commit sort of the length of time I would usually commit to periphery songs to this. I'm well in. I think this, um, I think this Mothership um, has a chance, this Mothership album, has, well, sorry, band, sorry, have a chance to be really, really interesting. And, and, and I think this album has a chance to be really, really good. I hope that we get a chance to like really look at it and review it because it just sounds it sounds really great, really refreshing, uh, really up tempo. Enjoyed the chorus. I'd like a um, a bouncy, light hearted pop metal pop punk vibe it that did. really sit really sits well with his voice. And I, it makes you think um, that when Spencer writes songs in periphery, he I imagine he comes in with like these basic ideas for chords. Um, and the chord arrangements and pop punk stuff, and that's probably where the pop, the writing starts, and then he hands it over to these like, um, like sort of Mozart style guitarists who just add all these extra layers and in, in, in dexterity for it. But if you probably took all the layers away and all the length away, you'd probably be left with something like this at its absolute core. It's nice to hear something that's stripped back um, for him. I, I, I've enjoyed this, and I think it's I think it's going to be really good moving forward. Still one of my favourite gigs of all time, Sam. Uh, catching periphery at the O2 Ritz in Manchester, were you? Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I have incredible memories of them doing um, The Way the News Goes and Loon at the conclusion of that show um, with just the looking around and, and with the lights on, the scene, the curtains um, and that beautiful venue. It was, it was really a special time. And that was when me and you really caught on to just how great they are, isn't it? Like obviously yeah, we listened yeah. to so we listened to Periphery Three Select Difficulty and we loved it and it was in our album of the year discussion and all that kind of stuff. But Periphery, you really need to see them live to appreciate just what they do because Spencer live, you just you cannot believe you cannot believe his ability live. Absolutely, it's an all star cast of of talent as well, and yet he I've said this before, but he still somehow the star of, of a band that is that extraordinarily talented. It is really, really, really impressive uh, to see his range and how easy he makes it look. It, it really was astonishing. I bet you love the fill from Halpern about halfway through this track, don't you? Yeah, so, some of the drums were, were surprisingly good. I'd say surprisingly, 
but the nature of the song doesn't necessarily lead you to think that it's going to be like super complex and stuff. well no because it's a simplistic style isn't it but yeah yeah which which i which i really enjoy when drummers still take the opportunity to make a simplistic song have these extra levels of flair and complexity and stuff and i think that's i think that's a mark of a really talented uh, musician that doesn't necessarily need um the complexity of a song to add complex ideas to that can make technique and flair out of the small little moments that they get in between um simplistic songs and simplistic um ideas and modes and stuff and i think this was uh, another example of that i was really impressed with this uh, i really was i did expect myself to not like this as much i thought oh a side project it's going to be like relatively okay like it's just going to sound like either a periphery b-side or something like this you're interested in and i was really pleasantly surprised that i enjoyed it as much as i did well, the debut King Mothership album, Sam, is coming out October 2nd via Century Media Records. So hopefully uh, we get sent that in the coming weeks. And, mate, I will blast that because I've got real big hopes for this record. Uh, I love Spencer. I love Matt. Uh, I adore Periphery. We both do. So I, I think, I think, man, uh, I'm really excited for the ritual, Sam. October yeah, 2nd. Yeah, I agree. It would also give us an opportunity to be able to see this guy performing like a small venue yeah like an, an intimate setting that'd be quite interesting our breaking band or in this case artist sam for this episode uh sarah zaborska it was sarah wasn't it when we figured out how to maybe we should That's say right, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sarah zaborska sam um now if i said to our listeners at home that me and you were going to do uh, a solo folk record for breaking band slash artists. I'm sure people would be thinking right now, Chris and Sam doing a doing a folk <laughs> record. What the fuck? Um, but me and you, we spoke about the options that we had uh, at our disposal to do our breaking band, or in this case, artist segment for this episode. And you know, we lo- we want to flex our wings, don't we, Sam? Every now and again, just do something completely different. That, we, that we've never really done before. And this was absolutely our chance to do so, right? Absolutely. And just because we talk pretty much solely about alternative music, that doesn't mean that there isn't other interests. Like, speaking, speaking personally, I'm a massive, like, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Springsteen, Willie Nelson, fan. And American singer-songwriters have always had a soft spot for me. And you yourself have a wider musical knowledge than the ones that are just limited to by some of the podcasts that we yeah. do here. And it's a yeah. good opportunity for us to, to talk about bands like this, give opportunities to, to bands like this that, that could always do with the exposure and, and any, any sort of help that we can offer with our um, sort of minute podcast here, but it gives us a chance to really get into different genres and, and, and connect with different audiences and stuff. It could be really positive for everybody. Hopefully. Sarah Zaborska, uh, or just the stage name Sarah, is a singer-songwriter from Cairn Northern, I think that's how you say that, uh, in North Wales. Uh, her I record... can't believe you asked me to help you pronounce Sarah, but not Cairn Northern. <laughs> well, well, actually, I wasn't, I wasn't looking at the notes this far That was where you were we more spoke... confident. <laughs> when, when, when we spoke about this before we came over there, I wasn't this far down in my notes. So I, 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 I actually didn't realise until I just got to this part that uh, it's Cairn Northern, it's got to be. We should have asked Jack. We should have asked Jack before yeah, we came on. Yeah, really, really should have. Also, really... Zaborska feels a bit risky. <laughs> I'm fairly confident. <laughs> like, you're I'm the, fairly you're so brave. <laughs> uh, so her, brave. Rec- 
Her record, uh, When I Wake Up, is available on all streaming platforms on August 14th via CAG Records. However, it is available physically right now. Uh, she's been writing slash recording in English and Welsh for a few years now, and she even does so on this record, which, I mean, for a start, before we even get into that, I mean, that, that really, I found that part incredibly impressive. The last song on this, Why Ghost? I was, yeah. I, I thought I was fucking, the, how she's got the ability to sing both languages. Fucking, that is <laughs> a specific, specific talent. I was really knocked me back. Um, she was selected as a BBC Horizons artist for the 2019-2020 campaign. And she even played a set in London's legendary Made of Vale studios. Um, so she, although she's somewhat of an unknown to me and you, Sam, up to this point, uh, she's already had quite the career. Uh, as we get into the, this record, Sam, I suppose as someone who doesn't listen to folk often, I'm speaking about myself here, I'm looking for something I can imagine I'd hear uh, when I'm sitting in Temple Bar in Dublin and enjoy. You've been to Dublin, haven't you, Sam? I have. You know what I mean? You know what I mean when I say that? Yeah, I know it, what you mean. Uh, yeah. In Temple Bar. Well, Irish, have... Ar- Irish folk sort of music. Yeah. So expecting acoustic guitars and fiddles and stuff. Yeah, so obviously uh, she's not Irish. But what no. I mean by that is in Temple Bar in Dublin, they'll have, they'll have these performers on. Uh, and it is, when I was there at least, obviously I can't speak for the grand amount of time, but when I was there at least, it was very similar to this type of, this kind of acoustic stripped back folk. Uh, and I think this record does a great job of that, Sam. Yeah, I really like this. Really, really like this. I think, number one, she's got a superb voice. She has, she's very talented. Really, really, really good. Um, there's, a, there's that classic folk falsetto um, that exists um, in, in this genre and she's nailed that where she can start a note and sort of trail off in the midst of in the midst of singing and be able to pull off these extra little falsettos that really make the choruses sort of stand out so I think there are lots of really really lovely songs on here I, I like the way it opened I like I like Rabbit Hole it was like this rambling or up-tempo style of guitar that complemented her voice really really nicely uh, I really liked Into the Woods, which had like an American Land by Bruce Springsteen sort of vibe with the violin in the background and things like that. I thought that was really, really nice. Um, I think there are, there are there are a couple of songs here that are, that really stand out to me. One was Boxes. Oh, beautiful. I, I bo- love Boxes. I thought, I thought Boxes was gorgeous. Um, just a simple little lyric here about how, you know, you're moving on and, and, and yet you still hold on to it through these sort of material possessions and you carry these boxes in different stages of your life and, and all that sort of stuff. And, it's almost like you're sort of compartmentalizing your emotions within these sort of um, little options and stuff. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And on top of that, obviously her voice is just superb. And the way that the song was structured allowed her voice to become the centerpiece. And I also loved Ghost and Pasts, um, yeah. which I thought was just an incredibly beautiful chorus um, that again, just stunning, really pulls her voice together and allows got- to show off this sort of, this fragility and vulnerability. Sorry, mate, go on. No, no, I was just literally just meant to say, she's got this really quite distinctive ache in her voice, hasn't she? Especially on Ghosts in the Past. Yeah, I completely agree. There's a, there's like, there's like a real pathos and, and sadness to what she's trying to say. And I think that's wonderful. And the, that's where this album is at its best for me. Uh, songs that are stripped back, not to the, to the point where I know folk is stripped back anyway, but a stripped back in particular. There are songs that are more, um, musician-led and there are songs that are more like alright it's just playing the chords in the background of her singing and those are the ones that work out the best here the the, the big up-tempo ones don't hit as hard for me because I don't think they actually take advantage of her skill set as well um, 
but I, I still really, really like this. I was incredibly impressed with. I think it's. I don't know if it's Egost or Wygost. I don't know how. I don't know how you pronounce that in Welsh. I'm not. I'm not familiar. I actually saw E and thought it was Spanish at first because of the Y. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, but yeah. So I, I think this is really, really nice. I think I've, I think she's got massive potential, and I think she's. Um, She'd be perfectly suited for a number of like festival slots around the country, yeah. Um, throughout the day and early evening and things like that, that could really, really suit. Her. You can you can imagine hearing this on big radio um, slots like Radio Two, Three, and Four are massive on this type of music. And yeah, I just think she's got a wonderful voice. I think the band complements her really well. It slides between classic folk music with like genuine pop stuff with the pianos and the the simple chords, but also like there's some classic American. Uh, modernish folk with 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 songs like uh, uh, uh like Budisa, uh where it kicks off in that that sort of like relatively electric acoustic sort of riff with like a little rock and roll feel and it, it sort of flits between a lot of these genres quite well i think overall this was um was a very pleasant listening experience and at times really really beautiful moments I echo pretty much every single sentiment you made there and pretty much everything you said I've got in a note, believe it or not. I've also got that I preferred the more ballad stripped down tracks, as you mentioned, Valkyrie stripped down anyway. But the moments where it's literally just her, I think that this is like almost a spellbinding and listen at time. And you've got tracks like Rabbit Hole and Bedisa where you know, I've got this real sense of imagery of like this dimly lit bar in like The Witcher. Uh, you watch the Witcher series on Netflix, and obviously I'm a big fan of the game, uh, with people like dancing arm in arm and beer flying everywhere, and that is meant as a compliment. Like, the, this album does a brilliant job of uh, creating that sense of imagery. Uh, she's got an absolutely stunning voice that I agree with you, really shines on boxes, and specifically for me, Old Soul, which is like this really gorgeous story of loss and fear. Uh, and I think, you know what, dude? You know who love this? My sister Jackie would love this, and dude, Jack all the way. Jack would love this. Yeah, I, I, I messaged him earlier, being like, "We're reviewing a folk singer who also does like a Welsh song. This is all you. This is yeah. so far up your street. It's actually parked outside your house." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my god! I, within forty-five seconds of listening to this album, I was like, Jack would absolutely love this, and he would He'd have slapped his knee like an old man. Oh, Matt, I've yeah, got, I've got I'm that so as a note. It. It's a good old knee slapper, and yet this album. <laughs> A good old knee slapper. It's what, it's oh, that's, that's superb. <laughs> that's superb. I've got something similar about Creeper later that I'll get to too. But um, I think there's lot, there's lots of verbs going on. Mate, if it's derogatory, we might fight. So well, I, uh, can't, I can't. I couldn't possibly reveal, could I, Chris? <laughs> no. Uh, <man. laughs> Sierra's album "When I Wake Up" is out on August August fourteenth via CG Records. That is available physically right now. Uh, really really great piece of work that one uh, and we are premiering uh Sierra, uh, as the video of the day on tuesday for the day this album uh, this podcast comes out sorry so go back through our timeline on facebook and on twitter and you'll be able to find one of the videos as well uh, sam we are going to move on to album reviews starting off sam with another band that is going to be of news to me and you at this point. Uh, Kill the Lights record, The Sinner. It's the debut album out on August 21st via Fearless Records. Uh, they're something of a rock metal supergroup. Um, former Bullet from One Valentine drummer Michael Thomas, or Moose as he's widely known, 
Still remains guitarist Jordan Whelan, Travis Montgomery from Threat Signal on guitar, and Throw the Fight frontman James Clark on vocals. Sam, I'm really, really confident you'll like this. Uh, yeah, bingo. Yeah, uh, I was is, really uh, confident. Uh, I, I knew, I knew you'd like this. How long did it take you? Seven seconds, like I did. Uh, pretty much uh, seven seconds in. I thought, right, really good start. The second that first solo hit, I was like, Sam's gonna fucking really like this album. This I is just wanna, I just wanna, I was completely with you. I just want to read my st- my notes as I wrote them as the yeah. first time I heard it. Yes. Shed my skin, hyphen organ. Holy shit, okay. Churchill impersonator, okay. Metalcore nastiness, okay. Mid tempo rage, a massive chorus, bit of me. This is oh my word, this solo. Back to organ <laughs> and breakdown, then blast beats. Holy shit, unreal changes of tempo. And that was my first two and a half minutes with this album. Um, when it when it kicked back in to the guitar solo and then didn't did the breakdown with the organ in the background. I was like, this is, Good this shit, is man. every, yeah, this is, this is everything I wanted in a metal song and bits that I didn't even know I, I, I yet, I yet enjoyed until right now. Um, this, some of the guitar work on this, mate, it's just oh, sensi- yeah. sensational. Yeah. Um, the, the, the guitar at the start of the faceless is unbelievable. Um, and there's a, like a Megadeth style guitar, guitar interlude that happens on that tra- second track as well. And there is a solo on plagues oh my fucking god with the sweet picking with the breakdown it just hit me for six mate and um the some of the musicianship here is 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 properly properly stunning same again on sober at the start just some incredible musicianship and i can really see um the bullet for valentine type influence here because yeah like classic bullet for valentine where it goes from like guitar led stuff to these massive, massive choruses also gave me a bit of a Black Tide vibe. If you remember Black Tide um, from the early 2010s, um, that contrast between sort of dual guitar harmonies and really big choruses, I think really, really worked well. Um, the drawback is as it goes along, it does feel a bit repetitive. Like it sounds like they found a, a blueprint that they enjoy and that works for them. And then by sort of the enemy, and tear me apart. I was like, okay, I would like to hear something else. Luckily, they do actually do that with sort of the rest, uh, with rest, sorry, uh, which is like a piano-led low-key, another great chorus. But at that point, it does start feeling a little bit sort of like um, rock metal by numbers uh, at times. Uh, but that doesn't that doesn't take away from how it's, it, it's absolute peak here. It's really, really, really good. I felt like... Um, voices uh was a little bit like asking alexandria-esque but like in a good way i genuinely mean that like when they were a metalcore band uh but at times it was a bit cheesy and a little bit like i'm hoping you'll obviously you of all people might understand this uh, a little bit like wwe montage yeah at times with voices where it's like we will fight and we'll carry on going i was like this yeah. randy orton could be uh involved in this somewhere along um somewhere as we're going along um, but when it's good, it's really, really, really good. I think it blows its load in the first six songs. And then after that, it's like not as good and does get a little bit repetitive and a little bit cheesy. I think you could drop this band in 2004, though, and they'd be like playing the NEC. Like, I, I genuinely feel that they're almost, almost missed the boat. Like, if you'd have put this in the new wave of, of American heavy metal or drop this band in 1988, I think we'd, yeah. be, um, we'd be talking like a, like a massive, massive group. 
because they do stuff really, really, really well. The guitar work is superb. The choruses are absolutely massive. When it's really good, it's brilliant. The first six songs of this, I think, are superb. Uh, but I think the last three or four are a bit repetitive and a little bit cheesy at times. Um, where do you sit with this? I really like this. Uh, I can hear bits of Trivium, Avenged, and Boy From Valentine, as you'd expect. Um, yep. Got these high-pitched, finger-shredding solos on Shed My Skin in the Faceless, which for me is very Sinister Gates. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair comp. Fair comp. Bit of Corey Bailey-Ali with Trivium as well, with the, the fast runs. Yeah. Um, occasionally, I do feel that there's something missing vocally for me. It's very 80s at some points. And, yeah, it is. It and, is. And like you said, occasionally it does fall into a bit, a bit of a cheesy, car- a cheesy category with some of the lyrics, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, I actually really, really like the styling of Through the Night. Um, you know, for some people, it might be a bit too similar to like See That or something like that. But, you know, that big production underneath uh, Clark's Tear Me Open, Leave Me Broken vocal is really great. Like I say, lyrically, it's not the most genius thing you'll have ever heard. But the way it's all produced and put together sounds really good. Um, I think the, I think, kind of what you said, the album does go onto a, a bit of a lull uh, just around about the middle part. Uh, there's a kind of a ballad attempt with like Tear Me Apart, which, which didn't really do much for me. And again, a little bit cheesy. Uh, there's a massively, massively tight solo on place, which is the one that you mentioned, which is fucking genius. I mean, if you were going li- if you, if you to listen to that song for anything, my God, the solo is absolutely extraordinary. But also it's worth mentioning that the song Plagues has got like a tremendous meaning behind it. Uh, it details James Clark's battle with cancer, which he had 10 years ago, and some of his member- family members he's lost through as well. So a uh, very, very uh, purposeful, a meaningful song uh, that's got an absolutely fucking genius solo in it. Uh, I think for the most part, Sam, and I'll see whether you agree with this, I think this album is an ideal crossover of people that fell out of love with metal after The Fever by Bullet From Valentine and the people that love Shine Down right now. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. It's, it's definitely a... Um, you know, this is great driving music for a metal fan. Yeah. That's what this this what strikes me as. You could you could really sort of um, really sort of enjoy listening to this and sort of like yeah, like you said, like sort of the shine down uh, pre bullet pre fever bullet for Valentine fans um, would really, really enjoy this. And it does have an event seven Voldy type vibe as well. Yeah, and a mid career asking Alexandria vibe. And it there's there's places for that. It is a bit it's a bit cheesy at times, like you say. But when this is good, this is very very good. And. By the sounds of this, you could understand perhaps why there was difficulties between Moose's opinion of where Bullet for Valentine should be and where Bullet for Valentine would be coming. Ah, interesting. This, you should this, bring that up. This, this, this music is definitely a dissertation of what Moose wanted Bullet to sound like. This definitely sounds like the album that they were, he wanted to hear um, probably around the time when Matt Tuck was giving press conferences saying Metal was dead and we're not doing guitar solos anymore. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's really interesting to hear that this sort of album with with that sort of perspective in mind. Well, I think this album is definitely, definitely better than anything Bullet from Valentine did after Fever, and I think this album is arguably better than anything Bullet from Valentine have done after The Poison. 
in my opinion. I don't think it's better. I don't think it's better than Scream Aim Fire, but I think it's better than everything else. I think this this would be the bullet album of the decade without a shadow <laughs> yeah. of a doubt. Which yeah, is definitely. A, a sad indictment of Bullet by Valentine over the last ten years, considering how much I love them in two thousand and five and six. Um, but yeah, I would agree. It does tail off. I agree with you. There's a lull, sort of track eight, nine, ten onwards. Not the best, but at the same time, there's so much good here in the first six that I'm cool with it. I would love to see Kill the Lights supporting a big metalcore band. The, these opening for Kill Switch Engage would be class. Play I've, six all, songs I've also got Alter Bridge as well. I've got Alter Bridge that they could support. Oh, as Alter Bridge well. is a great shout. I Alter think they good down. Great shout. I think they're good down a real treat supporting Alter Bridge because of the the technicalities. Obviously, Tremonte and and obviously uh, Travis. Uh, guitar work on here. I think I think Travis and Jordan's guitar work is fucking brilliant, and it would go down um, a real, real treat with uh, supporting Alter Bridge. Uh, I love yeah. the opening of Sober. That solo that gives way to James Clark screams, fucking wicked. Really nice. uh, Rest is my probably I think my favorite track on the album, which is strange considering it's probably, in fact, not probably, it's the most simplistic track on the record. No solos, no grand bridges of any sort. Straight up melodic metal. I think it's fucking great. Uh, I feel like all the stars perfectly aligned for them on, on that track. Uh, James lyrically uh, is, is good and chorus pitch is fucking brilliant and it's simplistic and it sounds great. It's massive in the chorus. I think uh, it's a really, really, really good track. Rest. It's uh, not easily my favourite track on the record because there's a lot of really good stuff in the first six songs like you mentioned, but it's it's definitely up there for me in terms of how fit for purpose it is, is probably a good way of putting it. Yeah, um, I think that's fair. I think mine's uh, Shed My Skin or Plagues. Just for, I, I like the ones that are the heaviest with the best solos in. This is an album that people who, who work in guitar shops would love. Yeah. Like this is, this is the um, cut off sleeveless denim jacket over tattoos, long hair, plays a flying V. And works in a guitar shop type song like this. This could be the this could be the soundtrack to Wayne's World. This album, and I do mean that as a compliment because the musicianship is so like abundantly clear. It just sort of blows you away. Like if you if you showed a guitarist this, he was just learning guitar. Yeah, they would think this is the greatest album of all time. Closing mention, Sam, for the breakdown on Chasing Shadows at the end. It's got yeah, the clean gu- It's got the clean guitar with running underneath it. Fucking hell. That's where I'm typing. Holy shit. This is fucking made entirely for me. Absolutely fucking brilliant. That part is so sick. It goes so hard. And you can, like you mentioned, you can absolutely see that. Just running riot on a metalcore tour lineup. I, I was really, really pleasantly surprised, surprised by this record, man. Really good. Yeah, I thought it was really, really good as well. I really enjoyed it at times. So that's Kill the Lights, The Sinner, as a reminder, out on August 21st via Fearless Records. We're going to get to the closing segment of the show, Sam. Creeper's, cool. sex, Creeper's Sex Death in the Infinite... Infinite... Infinite? Creeper's Sex Death in the Infinite Void. Uh, it's the second record <laughs> out now on Roadrunner Records. Uh, it charted fifth in the UK. We are recording this a few days after the album has already been out. We didn't get sent the album early, so that's why we're reviewing it now. Uh, so yeah, charted fifth in the UK after having stiff competition, Sam, from Roland Keating, of all people. Quite an interesting... Uh, 
kind of diatribe on Creeper's social media where they were like, right, we're in the top five, but Ronan and Keating's chasing us down, so we need you to all buy, we need you to all buy a fucking record, so Ronan and Keating's knock us out the top five, uh, which is, uh, yeah, take from that what you will. Uh, but Sam, with that, <laughs> with that, in the last few weeks, Berry Tomorrow in the top ten, Neck Deep finished fourth, and Creeper finished fifth in the UK album chart. So, again, we mention all the time, album sales don't mean what they did, but good songs for British rock, is it not? Completely agreed, especially when it, this is a band's second full-length album, you said. Second, yeah, second, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the extraordinary achievement, no matter how you slice it, isn't it? It's just fair, fair, play, fair play to them rising through the ranks in this way. Well, I've been really big on Creeper since they released their EP, The Stranger, back in 2016. You might remember, Sam, we even reviewed that on Soundcheck. I remember, Chris. I remember. I was massive on it. I was like, this is fucking great. I got really caught on to their ability to weave this like gloomy, dark attitude through the soaring choruses and the sounded really unique. Astral, if you're going to go back and listen to that EP, uh, everyone will talk back about the song Misery on it, but actually Astral Projections is the best song on that EP. It's fucking great. If you're going to go back and listen to that EP, mate, please listen to that song. Uh, their debut record, which followed in 2017, Eternity in Your Arms, was good. I liked it, but for me, it never truly capitalised on the momentum that they had at the time, uh, in my opinion. Uh, they toured that record, and then they, me, me and you saw them at Slam Dunk on that run. Do you remember, Sam? We were wonderfully pissed. We were wonderfully pissed. Yes, uh, yes, we were. So we saw them at Slam Dunk on that tour run. Then they kind of appeared to have split, and now here we are. They've come back uh, with all of that it was really important for this album to be a success for them, not just commercially, because we already know that was a success, but in terms of musically as well, because Eternity in Your Arms, the debut full length was good, but I do feel like it didn't capitalise on the massive surge of momentum that was behind the band at the time. Um, I reached out to Jack Holloway to just give me his roundabout ideas on the album, uh, because around about that time, when we were doing The Stranger, I was massive on Creep, and it kind of seemed like no one else in the noise sphere was. I remember we had like a, a, a chat in the noise management team where we were talking about I love Creeper, does anyone else? And people were like, oh, it's all right, and it's all right. Um, I remember we had a, uh, someone working with us called Kate who was like, it's all right, I'd love to get her opinion. I'm, uh, I'm curious to that. Anyway, Jack said, genuine contender for my album of the year. I've fallen in love with Creeper thanks to this album. It's brilliant from start to finish. Didn't really elaborate any further than that. I didn't really need him to. Uh, so I don't mean to gloat, Sam, but I am going to gloat and say, uh, I fucking told you so, Jack. I knew he'd eventually love this band. Moving forward to Sex, <laughs> Def moving forward to sex Death of the Infinite Void, Sam. Uh, I think this album is fucking tremendous. What do you think? I really like it. I really like it. It's... Um... It's it's an album that feels instantly iconic for its genre, um, and what I mean by that is, uh, I've not I've not really heard an album from a band that comes out this early that sounds so sure of itself, in terms of what they are and what they produce. There's like a real element of ambition, and drama, and wit, and theatricality that I haven't heard in an album like this since the first emo explosion with like My Chemical Romance and Fallout Boy and Planet of the Disco, where there was a level of Broadway-esque joke and wit and drama accompanying the music. 
this album is very clearly telling a story. There's a very clear narrative here. Uh, there's a dystopian feel to it. This feels like, and I, I don't know if you've seen the series on Netflix or you might have watched a couple of episodes. This feels like the musical version of, of Umbrella Academy, which is appropriately written by Gerard Way, where it's, it's, it's serious and deathly, but at the same time, there's an element of, of hilarity and cynicism as well uh, and dark humour and satire, which I, I thoroughly enjoy. Um, this has given me vibes of modern emo and rock, Britpop music, but also... A little bit of David Berry, a little bit of early Prince in terms of the narrative telling. And that those are not like compliments at all. I, I think this is really, really, really good. Um, I think this is an album that has a chance to be immediately important for the genre. I, I put on I put on Twitter a little bit early, and I don't mean this as an insult, though. I like the way that sometimes you can tweet things that sound insulting, but they don't <laughs> actually mean to be. Um, is that this is the album that has enough mantras in it, in its lyrics that wish and scream to be scrawled on the backs of planners and on the outsides of wrists by teenagers up and down the country. Like, like sort of phrases like, uh, like she's my cyanide and marriage is suicide and God is dead. And all these sort of like 1984-esque dystopian phrases that are just thrown and thrust in the midst of all this music and all this celebration really feels like it, it has its own marketing campaign of sorts it, it does feel but it does it's, it's one of those rare albums that feels special in the moment um i think the particular highlights to me from a musical standpoint um are the introductory song be well the second song be my end after the after the narrative kicks in where the vocalist seems to slide between sort of jarvis cocker and, and a low-key gerard way is really really impressive i thought born cold makes what originally sounded like a hard five type indie riff sound really interesting again because their ability to sort of summon, summon these huge choruses out of nowhere that you don't see coming. And also a big fan of the use of a xylophone in rock music. We've, I've missed the xylophone. It adds a, a different sort of tone completely to a song, gives it this whimsical quality that I'm really, really interested in. Um, I think the, the, two, the two song run of Cyanide and Annabelle is terrific. Uh, there's like a dystopia and, and romance to, to Cyanide that I find is really impressive. But also there's a cynicism and darkness to it that makes it seem less cliche and torturous, which romantic songs tend to feel to me. Um, Annabelle has like a misfits toxic romance style to it that I really, really like, coincide with this sort of brick rock stylistic and the show tune theatricality that comes up with these group vocals, I find was an impressive juxtaposition that I really, really liked. Uh, there's just so much going on here. There's like a 50s swing on Thorn to Love with a meatloaf narrative at the end where there appears to be you're thrust in the midst of this conversation that takes place. Um, there's like a duet going on in four years ago. I think my favourite song on this whole album, it's a close split between um, Napalm Girls, um, which I love, uh, the opening with the, the phrases, the chord changes, and he goes, God, he's dead, and he sort of half whispers it. I think that's wonderful. Uh, I think her kisses violence is going to be a tattoo idea for the next five years. Um, the girls are going to be putting that underneath captions of photos where they're looking in mirrors, looking sad. <laughs> Like it's such a no, but, but I mean that as a compliment. It's such yes. a simple phrase where it's a lovely romantic juxtaposition between the romance and, and aggression that a person can bring and, and how a person could be could be good for you and bad for you. And I think that really works well with the audience that they're aiming for. Um I think that's really, really terrific. And I think all my friends at the end is a beautiful piano ballad with a gripping hook that highlights their selling point, which is their vocalist. He's an incredibly witty lyricist with um, instantly iconic ideas in terms of what he's trying to sing. He's got a good voice, not a great one, but a good voice that can carry a lot of different genres. 
and you see the videos and you see the artwork that they've got a company album really looks the part. Um, they, if this, if this album kicks off, like I expect it to, which is already is doing successfully, I expect this to be, um, one of the biggest, um, sort of Brit rock, uh, releases of the last few years. And certainly a bit of a revival, um, for sort of email and, and that style of music. Um, I, I really think it's a very, very impressive and polished release that I think will have massive cultural shockwaves through people of a certain age in the same way that My Chemical Romance's Three Cheers of Sweet Revenge did back in 2004 or three. I can't remember. It's almost like, Sam, I don't need to give my opinion there because if this album could get you, who wasn't into Creeper person previously, to speak so wax lyrically about how much you like the album, I almost don't need to say anything because that is the seal of approval that we, the biggest seal of approval that we could give. You weren't into them. This album has got you into them. That's, that's, yeah, what, really this, that's what this record has done. Um, for me, I think this is fucking fantastic because it does a very, very interesting job of kind of changing Creeper's credo in the sense of on Eternity in Your Arms, they were very much an emo rock band. Whereas for me, I think this album is much broader than simply yeah, pointing the finger and saying emo rock. This is like gothic pop. That's the closest mm -hmm. thing that I, I could draw this to personally. Um, I mean, it definitely feels closer to like the Cure than it does. My oh, absolutely. Oh, oh, absolutely. That is a that is absolute brilliant shout. Um, I think this album starts off amazingly. The sound of that thunderstorm, which is that classic creeper setting, and then be my end comes bursting out the tracks and the hook on that chorus. Fuck, man, so brilliant. Um, Born Cold, mate. Just to branch off what you were saying, how simplistic in its structure is that song? It's three chord repetition. When you get to that yeah, chorus. Yeah. When you get to that chorus and the synths lie underneath Hannah and Will, Will, Will Gould is the uh, lead vocalist. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and I think maybe it's the gothic setting offset by these glamorous pop choruses that hooks me in so much. You know, that you look at the, like, Will Gould kind of croons right at the start of Cyanide, and that, yeah. I, I, I love this lyric, kissing in the acid rain, heaven on a tongue again. What, I mean, that is such fucking brilliant poetry uh, that, like you said, scribbled in the back of planners, man, that's a really, really good analogy. Uh, you know, often love can feel like suicide works really, really well to the way it's punted at the end of, that, of the chorus on Cyanide. Um. There's some gothic recitals on this album that originally didn't work for me. I did wonder why they were there. I was like, does this bring anything to the record the first time I was listening to it? However, on, third, on second, third, fourth listen, uh, Celestial Violence is this like gothic recital that offsets the poetry and bends from the opening riff of Annabelle fucking brilliantly. Like, it, it's literally like this kind of paradoxical difference like this kind of really dark dirgening description of life and then bursting into this really like uplifting poppy riff for annabelle uh will gould the vocalist i think is fucking fantastic on this album uh, and then you've got the one two mate of poison heart and thorns of love and i think 
I think Thorns of Love might be my favourite song on the album. Uh, but coming as a two following each other, they're these two solemn tales of heartbreak, beautifully written. And again, Rolls Range is, is fucking great. He's got these abilities to these really deep, low verse notes and then break yeah. into these massive clean choruses really well. Um, and mate, Thorns of Love, how 80s is Thorns of Love, man? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, I agree. There's, there's a couple of tunes in here that have like a like a fifty swing to them as well. Yeah, uh, there's so there's so much there's so much going on in this album from like a musical perspective. I agree with you that it feels broader, but I think the greatest success for me as a listener is that it's hard to explain, but it feels important when you listen to it. Yeah, I don't know how I don't know it, it, I don't know how to quantify that. Like it feels it feels special. It feels different. Um, and I think it's a combination of the the little clips of voices that you hear, the little snippets of conversations that you hear in the midst of stuff, the whole, the little bit about clipping Cupid's wings. It all feels very, very broad, right? It feels like a Rocky Horror Picture Show at times with sort of like dark humour and and sort of theatre element co- coinciding with the music. And I think that works really, really well. Um, if you listen to like sort of early meat love stuff like Bat Out of Hell does things like this where there's like little cutaways and little bits of vocals and conversations that make you feel like you listen to a, a narrative story and then on top of that on top of that at its heart it's got some great great pop moments and some real transcending tidal waves of chorus that will be I could just hear this album being massive it just it just immediately feels big immediately feels expansive and I honestly think if you'd have put, I just imagine if, if I was 16 when I heard this, I'd be freaking out. Yeah. Or at the very least, I knew that 90% of my friends would be. I'm like, freaking out, be yeah, on I'm the, 27. <laughs> but you, like, yeah, like, imagine if you heard this when you were 17, when you were just yeah. getting into Yumi at six. This might have changed your life. Do you know what I mean? This might have been the band. And I think, and I really stand that that's, that's an important thing. And I, and I don't think, and I think that's a wonderful thing to happen because I think that's what you need. When you're 16, 17, 18, and 19, music is, if you're a music fan, music is the most important thing in your life in the same way that if you're a sports fan, that's the most important thing or whatever it might be. And an, an album like this that feels really expansive and big and important and theatrical, and then you add all these lyrics and these big hooks, can be an album that people of a certain age really cling on to and really, really enjoy. And like I said, you know, scrolling on wrists and planners, but also buying t-shirts and queuing outside. You need albums that inspire passion, that inspire the desperate love and need and fixation and obsession that only teenage fans can have. That's why My Chemical Romance was so big is because the Black Parade brought that out of people. It made people desperately, frenetically invested in an album and in a band. Same with you, you Mid Sings bringing out, you Mid Sings bringing out Sinners Never Sleep. People just gravitate to that song and that, that those songs and that that album and that band. And I really, and obviously, like I'm 27, I'm not 16, so maybe I'm saying all this and it might flip by the wayside. But I imagine that this is an album that could be really, really big for the next generation of rock fans. It feels like that sort of album to me, and and I think that is the highest compliment I can pay it. Would feel stupid, Sam, if I didn't bring up the use of synths on this album, which I think is fantastic. And yeah, they're not, I, I they're not overbearing. Uh, Hannah, Hannah on yeah, keyboards. True. Hannah on keyboards is always used so brilliantly. And the best example of how she's used is on Thorns of Love. Uh, 
her keyboards and backing vocals just sit just loud enough in the mix that don't overbear. They just prop the track up another notch. Fucking gorgeous. And ne she's never overbearing, never overused. They always use Hannah to the perfect, perfect amount that uh, benefits the song. Um, and when, when you look at what this album is, Sex, Death and the Infinite Void, it's this incredibly bold, creative record that plays with the boundaries of gothic pop, emo rock, pump, pump, punk, and then you've got Napalm Girls. What does an emo sound like? Oh, dude, probably my chemical romance is last album. Uh, then you've got... <laughs> then you've got <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> flashbacks to bingo the other week um then you've got <laughs> napalm girls which is i'm sorry no fucking hell i'm gonna end up finishing this point eventually right go on mate then you've, got, girls. then you've got napalm girls bro which is this straight up indie rock out of indie rock track i think you'd hear that coming from the wombats so brave to just chuck that in there towards the end I, I agree. What I like about this is there's a balance. And I, I agree with you that um, the synths are used sparingly, but in the right way. In the same way that a lot of the band are, this doesn't feel like, at no point, the, I feel like the music is sort of overtaking the vocals and vice versa. They all step back when they need to step back to let the vocalist's voice cascade forward. And I think, like with most bands of this style, he's the star of the show. His lyrics, his... Um, phrases, his turn of phrases, yeah, his his charisma, really sort of the personality of him exudes from every song here, and I think that's really really important. That comes across with all my friends. There's a real there's a real misery that he sings yeah. with, yeah, uh, and 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 there's a real feeling of emotion that that sort of accompanies it. But at the same time, it never actually feels too somber or sad. It's really strange because it comes back to a major key after that that all my friends chorus, and it's almost like like there's an intangible mood shift already from that point. And I like just how they toe the line between misery and sort of this excitement and intangible um, sort of lightning and thunder sort of feel to it, that sort of tension. It never feels too sad and somber where I'm listening to this thinking, all right, okay, get over yourself. But at the same time, it doesn't feel too happy and pleasing where the pop elements take over. It finds a lovely balance between contrasting emotions and the styles of the and the styles of the musicians really allow that to come to the fore. And on top of that, I usually roll my eyes at the spoken word stuff, and I think that works really, really well. It's a well-produced album that's really put together. And like I said, it has has the potential and has the feel of an album that we could be looking at on and saying, oh, that kicked off like the reintroduction of the emo revolution. This was the new wave of of sort of emo or Britpop or whatever it might be. It feels like that sort of album to me. And I think that could be really positive for rock in general because we need, we just need more teenagers <laughs> in metal just to keep this drive going because those will be the 25 and 30 year olds that are still going to gigs like we are. And that's what this movement always needs is more youth. And I'm, I think that this album could be one of those things that kicks the door open um, for those sort of people. That closing ballad, Matt, of all my friends is fucking beautiful. And, and just really, really solemn. Um, just fucking brilliant just like this album absolutely love this record dude uh, can absolutely see it being in my top 10 come the end of the year this is 
without doubt the album that they needed to make. And I think just like you said, echoing, I think they're going to be a really, really big deal. I think they're going to be the band that I thought they would be in 2016. Wasn't sure come 2017. Now I think they're the band that I thought they were going to be in 2016. This is fucking great. I would agree, mate. And that brings episode 45 of the Noise Podcast to an end, Sam. I did want to ask you uh, what comes into the next episode, which is our greatest metal album of all time list. However, I remember a conversation that we had, Sam, uh, Mm -hmm. that means we're going to have to skip forward one. Uh, What would have been number eight on our greatest metal album of all time list? It would have been Slipknot's debut album, mate. However... As some of you who's listening might remember, me and Sam already did an episode dedicated entirely to Slipknot's debut self-titled record. Uh, That was for its 25th anniversary. Uh, Go back and listen to that episode if you would like, because me and Sam do go into great detail on that record. That is one of my favourite chats that we've ever had on an album. We we really, really uh, went into quite full detail on that record. It was really interesting. Uh, So what would be coming at number seven then, Sam? We'll do that one instead. Indeed, we will be doing Pantera's vulgar display of power at number what seven, f- my friend. What a fucking album. Oh, boy. <laughs> fucking brilliant. Mate, what a fucking album. Cannot wait for that one. So that comes next Tuesday, then. Me and Sam doing a full detailed discussion on Pantera's sophomore record, vulgar display of power. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we are going back in a week's time. Uh, remember to give us a like and subscription on YouTube or wherever you listen to the podcast. Give us a subscription. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next Tuesday. We love you. Bye.